Welcome to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by the trio from Scopes and Scrubs. I have Marisol, Juliana, as well as Lindsay. Um, they are three students that are in what, are, what is known as an MD-PhD program. So they are medical scientists in training. Currently third year, is that right? Third year, fourth yep, year? Third year. Third year. Just finished up the All right, wonderful. <laughs> yep. But anyway, thank you so much for joining. Uh, it's, it's really great to have you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, uh, how? So we'll go, we'll go ahead and start with you, Marisol. How exactly did you find yourself to be in an MD PhD program? How? Let, let's hear your science journey. I'm yeah. Yeah. Curious. Of course. Yeah. Excited to share this one. Um, so full disclosure, I did not know an MD PhD program existed until I started college. But I can definitely pinpoint a couple things in my life that kind of got me interested in science in the first place and kind of opened me up to those sorts of programs and finally ultimately put me here where I am right now. Um, so my parents owned a preschool and growing up I was always surrounded by teaching, education. Um, I loved working with kids and I actually always imagined myself being a teacher. Um, it really wasn't until high school where I started taking these science and math courses and I would say biology specifically that got me extremely excited about human physiology and everything. Um, like related to the body and then at that point I think I realized that as a doctor you are basically a teacher but like at a different level um, and so I think it was in high school where I made the switch from being teacher to being doctor um, and so I did start college I went to Florida International University in Miami where I'm originally from and that's where I started uh, doing a pre-med track um, I started I actually got into a research program while it was like part of my pre-med track, but it had a focus on research. And so starting freshman year, um, I did uh, get asked, so like the program requires you to kind of join a lab. Um, and at that point, I started thinking about what in science I was interested in. Um, my grandma um, had Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I think always as a child, I always questioned why her brain was different. And I kind of saw the whole transition. So I saw her from when she could perfectly recognize me and talk to me and have a conversation with me and eat by herself and all those uh, things that we kind of take um, advantage of now. Um, but she was able, she went transition. I saw that transition from her being a normal functioning human being to someone who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease and she couldn't recognize me. She couldn't hold conversation and she couldn't even take care of herself. Um, and so I think growing up seeing that transition always got me interested in the brain and why brains differ from person to person. And so I did join a neuroscience lab my freshman year of undergrad, um, kind of asking psycho psychological questions. Um, and I kind of wanted to get deeper and deeper into understanding the brain. So I moved to like a neuroengineering lab, just trying to parse out what the brain is. Um, and so for a long time, I think since college, I was really fascinated by the brain. Now I am currently, as you mentioned, in an MD PhD program where I do study the brain I'm getting a PhD in neuroscience, and ultimately, I do want to be a neurosurgeon who also does neuroscience research. Uh, but that was kind of my track, and I think little random things that kind of all yeah. together culminated to what are my passions and interests now. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And do you uh, do you do you think it really was seeing what your grandmother went through that led you towards to more towards neuroscience, or were there other um, things? I think there's several, so there's several things I want to highlight that one, but I am yeah. um, also left-handed and I mean, in, I like read a lot about like what it means to be left-handed, like growing okay. up just like out of pure interest and I stumbled upon 
uh, psychiatric research that pointed at a lot of like schizophrenic having uh, being left-handed, like a majority of the population. I was like, oh, that's so interesting how something so simple that we don't even think about, like your hand preference can lead to or could be correlated to psychiatric disorders. Um, and schizophrenia among a lot of psychiatric disorders are very fascinating. And the fact that like we know nothing about them is quite interesting. And so I think little things like that just kind of pointed me towards uh, the neuros neuroscience specifically. The brain is just so fascinating. And now that I'm actually taking neuroscience courses, little things that we like take for granted. So for example, um, when you're running, your vision focuses on your surrounding. So that when you're running and you're bouncing up and like up and down when you're running, the image in front of you isn't bouncing as well, right? Otherwise you would get, <laughs> you'd be nauseous, nauseous trying yeah. to walk, like even from walking or being in a car that's like bumpy, your eyes are capable of just fixing the environment in place so that you don't have to deal with that. And there's people that like have disorders that this nerve that connects to the rest of the brain and kind of pieces all these things together is not functioning. And as a result, like just by them walking, their vision is just bouncing up and down. And that's something so simple and stupid that we don't think about like what we're looking at right now. Um, and I think it's very fascinating that the brain, which is so small and maybe like very small part of our body can be doing such computational things that are very interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's truly fascinating. And what you were saying about, you know, taking for granted the little things. And so I'm assuming that the brain is what fixes the uh, environment around you. It's not actually something that's done on a eye, eye level, like from like a fine muscle tuning, but it's actually something that the brain fixes or is it maybe both? I don't know. So it's a combina combination. combination. So it's actually called okay. like the vestibulo-ocular uh, uh, I forget exactly the reflex, vestibular ocular reflex. Okay. And so it takes in input from your ears, which is has the vestibular system. For those that don't know, you have three rings in your ear, all fixing different orientations, X, Y, Z. And when you tilt your head, there's actually fluid in there that moves. And when it moves, it triggers these hair cells that are in that fluid to send um, electricity into your brain. And it tells you, okay, your head's oriented in this direction, your head's oriented in this direction. So a combination of your head orientation, which comes from your ear, is being sent and combined with the eye information that you're getting and that is all being translated and sent to your brain to let you know and fix the image that's super interesting. it's just like a lot of little things and it happens yeah. so fast that's phenomenal as well so you can think of neuroscience like both math uh, like mathematically like computationally you can think about it behaviorally you can think it in systems like how the whole thing comes together and makes you your personality and whatever that could be called um, so there's a lot of like neuroengineering as well. If you're doing prosthetic devices, that takes in like an engineering side. So I think there's a lot you can do with neuroscience and it's very fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm an amateur neuroscientist, I like to say. I've done, I've done, what'd you say? I said, join the dark side. Join the dark side. We need more physics I, people. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that, um, uh, at one point in my career, I, because I'm fascinated by biology and I have a number of family members who work in the medical field, uh, growing up, my mother was an oral surgeon and I considered actually doing an MD PhD at one point in my life because I uh, really like med a lot, medicine a lot, and, but I also love physics. So I was thinking about doing biophysics and then combining an MD with a PhD, particularly because I didn't want to pay for the MD either because medical <laughs> school is very difficult to get covered or to get scholarships for. But mm -hmm. if you combine it with the PhD track, 
PhDs in science are so easy to get funding for, so you could get the whole thing paid for, just, you know, spend an extra two years or whatever. Yeah, So that's but anyway, true. Uh, but now there's a lot of free med schools, or that's emerging concepts. Is it? Okay, well, I'm a proponent <laughs> of that, yeah. Okay, so Juliana and Lindsay, so let's hear, who wants to go first? Let's hear your story. I'm, I'm very interested. Our stories kind of all intertwine, yeah. so I guess uh, yeah. so, you can start yeah, off. I'll start, and then, start. <laughs> and then you can jump in. Yeah. Yeah. So we're identical um, twins. Yeah, so yeah, we're um, identical twins. Um, I didn't we, notice. <laughs> um, it's hard to tell. So uh, we grew up around medicine, so my dad's a physician, so I was always exposed to medicine, so went into undergraduate um, on the pre-med track, uh, knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and then during my freshman year, um, I was at Columbia for undergrad and um, uh, my mentor in lab, um, I saw a talk that he presented and I just thought it was like incredibly fascinating. Uh, it was about how the brain processes smell. Um, and I never really thought about research before that, but I sent him an email and I was like, I would really be interested in hearing more and working in the lab if you'd be willing to take on an undergrad. So I went in and I interviewed and I was able to work in the lab during that summer. And then I ended up staying in that same lab all throughout undergraduate, um, went and researched during the summers and was there during the year. I was there all the time. Um, I fell in love with research and I knew that it needed to be a part of my career. And like Maurice Soule, um, didn't know about the MD-PhD program until later, until I realized that I wanted to incorporate research. Um, and they make it easy for you <laughs> if you have an interest in both, because there's the MSCP programs, uh, medical scientists training program. Um, so... Yeah, so that's how I got involved in that. And I don't. Yeah, it's, I guess it's a similar story. So I also grew up exposed to medicine, and I guess it shows you kind of a nature versus nurture thing. We've always had yeah. kind of similar but different interests, because um, I feel like I guess it's just our genetic wiring. We're <laughs> we're um, exposed, and nature we're exposed to the same things, and we both can talk about what we're interested in. So um, growing up, we had a lot of similar interests, and I was also interested in medicine because. Um, of seeing my dad and as well as like in high school taking science classes that it was just clicked for me was came like more naturally um, so then in college I knew I wanted to do medicine um, and then I joined a lab um, I actually joined a stem cell biology lab I was a neuroscience major um, but was kind of like fascinated and it seemed so elusive to me the world of like stem cells I didn't really know what they were but it sounded really like like people always talked about it there was like some controversy I was like what are they um, so then I got in a stem cell biology lab um, studying intestinal stem cells um, in flies, um, and I really liked it. My mentor um, was an MD-PhD, um, so that was kind of my first exposure to like, I didn't know you could do this, I didn't know it was like a set program. Um, so having that mentor was um, very important to me, and then I realized I really liked research. Um, and yeah, and I wanted it to be incorporated. Um, and now I still study um, stem cells biology, um, but in bone, so. I kind of kept along that track, um, but I'm still, I still find neuroscience very interesting, but kind of went a different way. The stem cells are fascinating though. I mean, would you, would you say that uh, stem cells are, will like dominate, like regenerative medicine is going to kind of like dominate this decade? Because it seems like it's becoming more and more popular and that the, like the potential of stem cell therapy across all swaths of anything healthcare related it just, it just yeah. seems like, it just seems incredible to me. Yeah, so we're, yeah we're both, we both do, yeah, so now I- You're was, both doing stem cells? Yeah, okay. so I, All right. I, yeah, so we both do stem cells, but the neuro I keep the neuro aspect, so I study how uh, nerves impact stem cells, specifically in the skin, um, but we're both in the regenerative medicine department, and so I, I study so, skin yeah. stem cells, she studies 
bone stem cells, but it's nice because we all join together as like a collective unit to kind of think about regenerative medicine and have mm -hmm. these discussions. And um, yeah, a lot of stem cells have similar properties and um, a huge problem is your stem cells capacity um, to function declines as you age. So that's why we see a lot of age-related degeneration of things. So understanding how they function in a normal, young, healthy state and how we can manipulate them um, to be kind of like super-powered cells and aging or use young cells and aging um, is kind of a really interesting area um, that I'm excited about and I think still has a long way to go, but could be a really good um, area of, um, of uh, improving medicine, especially in orthopedics. Yeah. Super, super interesting. Okay, so in your research, because uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by stem cells as well. Uh, so do you, what type of stem cells do you work with? Like, I, I know that there's like various stages. Do you take like adult cells and then you convert them back to, I don't know, like totipotent, pluripotent? I'm not, I'm not sure about these terminologies. Maybe you can, mm -hmm. you can help me with this, but there are stem cells, like placental stem cells, which can essentially turn into anything, right? Mm -hmm. like any aspect of the body. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Now, is that pluripotent or totipotent? I can't remember. Or is it something else? I think totipotent is like, like everything that's in the embryo. That's like the, yeah. um, like at the, so very, at the very beginning. Yeah. But then you, then it becomes yeah. when most people study embryonic stem cells. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Those, yeah, those are pluripotent yeah. because they lose the like um, ability to become the trophoblast, which is like one little part of the embryo. So then they okay. call those pluripotent, but they can pretty much become like any layer yeah. of the body. Like you have three different layers and those cells can become any one of those. So that's typically pluripotent is typically like, encompasses everything except for that okay what about the omnipotent ones these are all triggering words from like undergrad <laughs> oh yeah you're, you're yeah i don't omnipotent i'm sure it's a type of stem cell but we both actually we, study no, um it's not. we both move a little further along the line and we're in like adult stem cell mm -hmm. so like mm -hmm. um, multi-potent cells yeah, that so, only have a few fates yeah. Um, so I do um, bone stem cells, um, I do okay. skin, but not studying it as early as uh, like ES stem cells and culture work, um, a little bit of that, but using the mouse as a model um, and then looking at how these cells kind of progress throughout development. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But yeah. I did go to a New York stem cell um, conference in Yamanaka who discovered the Yamanaka factors was there. And I was like, that was one of the moments I was super starstruck. Um, <laughs> cause that's, you, were star you were starstruck? I was so starstruck because he, uh, <laughs> he, he's the person who took the skin cell and then using a few transcription factors was able to like revert it back to like an embryonic stem cell like state. Um, so I oh, think so he was the guy, he was the individual that did that. Because yeah. that's like, that was, that was a huge step in stem cell therapies. I know, particularly moving away from uh, mm -hmm. actually using um, like the, the embryonic stem cells because that's contentious yeah, and historically, mm -hmm. um, and they were able to move away from using those because of that process developed. Yeah. So now you could take skin cells and then just revert those or anything really. And just using like a handful of transcription factors, reprogram them, which is like a huge development. Um, and I think it's actually being used a lot in neuroscience. Um, mm -hmm now to create models of neurons and things like that so uh, it all connects right <laughs> yep. we need you guys <laughs> okay so all right so you just finished your third year of school are you done with med school and now it's research or how exactly does the md, MD phd process work yeah, yeah so, so usually oh go ahead, Luke, yeah, you go. Go ahead. <laughs> it's hard to figure out okay 
So usually the way MD-PhD programs work is that you do your first two years of medical school, and then you go and you do your four years, plus or minus years, depending on how well or your, what your project does. And then you wrap up and you do your last two years of med school. So the first two years of med school are mostly uh, preclinical stuff is what they call it. And it's all mostly textbook and lectures and learning about the different systems in your body and learning how to take uh, talk to patients and, you know, that sort of thing. And then the last two years of medical school is actually when you're in the hospital um, with different teams and rotating throughout different specialties. So currently right now we are wrapping up or I guess finished our first, our first year of graduate school, um, which is mostly course heavy. Um, and then that kind of tapers out um, as you go through the grad years, you take less classes and you're more time in lab so you can work on your thesis project. Very cool. So <clears throat> how did you meet? I'm assuming you met at school? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So are you the, um, I'm assuming you're in the same class then? Yeah, we're yeah, the same, same year in the same class. I actually had done a research program <laughs> with Marisol's sister um, as an undergraduate at Rockefeller um, University. And so um, on the, we our class is 14 people. So we're, it's a pretty like the MD PhD class itself, the med school, our med school class is bigger, but so it's just a, a small group of us and we were talking and we followed each other on Instagram and I realized that I already had known her sister. So it's a really small world, but then, yeah, we met through being in the same MD PhD class and we've been really close friends um, ever since. <laughs> Do you know there's only 14 of you? And like, is that yeah. typical for one class? Well, I know that, I know that MD PhDs, I mean, it's, it's a fairly daunting degree program uh, mm -hmm. because I, what, what is it, eight years on average? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So eight years after undergraduate. Yeah. So, okay. Yes. And then do you have to go into like a residency afterwards as well? Yeah. Okay. So you like school. You commit. You like the school. Yeah, but usually well, four, like 14 is pretty big. That's not... Mm -hmm. That's a little bit above average for most programs. Most programs go from like range from seven to 10. And there's okay. maybe some programs that do take like 20 students. Um, that's like probably one school that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but this is like a, we're like kind of a bigger class. Everyone else is a little smaller. Um, yeah, that's for what, but, like entering year though. I think in the, in the program total, there's probably like- Yeah, yeah. Okay. But there's like a thousand MSTP students in the United States right now currently. With all a the years included. A thousand MD PhD students in the United States, you said? Yeah, it's MSTP specifically, which is the, what Julie was pointing, oh, which is I like see. the medical science training program. It just means the funding okay. actually comes from like the NIH oh, um, versus like okay. private money. Um, oh, okay. But within the MSTP program, there's currently a thousand students in all the, throughout the, all, all the years. So it's a relatively small program. I see. So, okay, just for clarity, so there are MD PhD programs, correct? But the MSTP, so that is an acronym for medical, medical scientist science. training program. Okay. It's an MD PhD and program, but it's just like it's different. But it's funded, funded, right? But it's yeah. funded. It's a funded. Okay. So with an MD PhD, there's no guarantee, no guarantee of funding. Right. But if you or get the MSTP, yeah, what's they that? Fund it through different mechanisms. Sometimes maybe they'll have private funding, um, or the university solely will fund it. Um, whereas okay. the MSTP, it's like a uh, established like NIH supported program so it's, okay, it's like little, little subtleties but um, it's still the same format and they do the same, same thing they just, yeah, the but you don't have to pay for it so it's even better yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly and you get a stipend too which is a lot of things 
something that a lot of people don't know. Like, it pays for your medical school and you get a stipend all throughout your eight years. You get a little bonus. A little bonus. Uh, so you can survive and live in New York City. <laughs> be in school uh, for eight years. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, there are worse places you could be. Uh, That's well, true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with, I know with uh, PhDs and my experience um, going through my graduate school is that uh, it's, a, it's the same thing. Um, that you can get funding, usually get it from the university, but you have to do like a TA, a teaching assistantship. Mm. So that's where you teach labs, or you, you proctor classes, things of that nature. And then you have all your other responsibilities in addition to it. And you get a tuition waiver and then some funding or some, a stipend on top of it. It's not, it's not, it, it's not glamorous, but it, at least you don't have to pay for your school. Yeah. And I think that what most people don't realize is that the tuition waiver is actually not a full tuition waiver. Like mine's like 80% reduction. Like I still have to pay to go to school, but it's only, it's only like 20% of the original value. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's the same thing with uh, MSTP programs, but I know with at least my science, like a PhD program. And I think with um, talking to other graduate students, other PhDs, like they don't, when you get funding, like they don't have a full tuition waiver, which no, would be nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, but anyway, okay. So, all right, so you all met together in the MST program at NYU. Now, when did you decide to do Scopes and Scrubs? How did that all come about? I'd like to hear the, the origin stories origin of the, of the we brand. We can each say it. It's yeah? like when you okay. ask a couple, like, who's, like, how did you guys meet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we each have different stories. I'm kidding. Um, okay, sorry. so who, let's see. Who, how, how about... Juliana or Lindsay, one of you, you, you right. can take the reins on this. Um, take the reins. <laughs> so I think one thing that we realized was that um, we all didn't really know about the MD-PhD program until college. college. Um, so we're like, wow, uh, there's really needs to be a better way to get the word out to people about this program because um, mm -hmm. being a physician scientist is such a cool career and more people need to know about it. Um, and also just like showing people what we do with our daily lives. I think that, um, as I'm sure you know, like the career of a scientist is very elusive to the general public too. Like people don't know what a scientist does um, generally. Completely unappreciated. Right? So <laughs> we, we were like, it'd be cool to, in Instagram, um, this was, I guess, two years ago when we started, right guys? Yeah. yeah, it was like our first year of med school. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Instagram was getting really big. <laughs> Um, and there are a lot of like the kind of the idea of the influencer was kind of popping up and there was like all these different accounts highlighting different things. And we were like, what if we did it for medicine and science? Um, and we all liked Instagram, we um, independently, being like being creative. Um, so we just kind of sat down one day and had the idea and talked about it and then threw up some pictures. Um, and it kind of evolved as we went along, but, um, yeah, we always wanted it to be more of like, just like both showing uh, what our daily lives looked at like as MDP mm -hmm. students as well as we um, wanted to provide the mentorship that we received um, in college to other people. Um, we answer questions in our DMs about what an MD PhD program is. We release YouTube videos. Um, we read personal statements. Um, so just um, kind of creating another resource in the social media realm, which is something that's pretty dominant within both our generation and younger generations. Um, so we wanted to have um, a seat at the table there. Yeah, and I think as, as it evolved, we started thinking more like broader of like how we can create a space like on social media that is like relevant for science and medicine. Maybe also like women in science, like may, that might not have, like I never met an MD, a female MD PhD 
until I was like in an MD PhD program. And I feel like it's nice to have that kind of um, connection like with someone early on. And so we kind of create a space there where people can talk about what they're doing in science, what they're doing in medicine and form collaboration with other doctors, other scientists and kind of, I don't know, have a, have a space in social media that is like relevant to, to what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, uh, I think your platform is fantastic. Uh, the website's great. And I think your Instagram account, there's a bunch of great information on there. And it seems as though you're doing pretty well, like people have caught on to it. And uh, I mean, have you gotten good positive feedback from, uh, from society, I guess, you know, from, from your audience, you know, people like sending you DMs about, you know, particularly if you said you want to, uh, you know, connect with women, but all people who want to Mm-hmm. partake in MD PhD programs have you gotten you know a good amount of responses you know DMs uh you know asking for help things of that nature yeah, yeah. all the time we always have to post yeah. like we're sorry we can't get to your DMs like we're just you know I mean we're really busy and it helps that it's three of us so we can sort of manage responsibilities and get to everyone's questions quickly but I think I think we all three agree that one of the most fulfilling thing is when people actually DM us saying like, Oh, you read my personal statement last year. I just applied and I got accepted to my, like my favorite school. Like, thank you so much. And it's like those little things like that, that actually make scopes and scrubs like live and, you know, keep going. Yeah. Or the like, Oh yeah. You know, like, like, or like I got a bad grade. Do you think I should keep going or should I just give up completely? Um, so it's nice to be there and be like, you know, keep going. If this like is what I've you want to do, like, you can do it. If yeah. I can do it, you can do uh, just, it. Yeah. Even to provide that, uh, the bit of motivation from someone who's, you know, in the MBPHD program. Mm-hmm. Um, who's done it. Yeah. Who's done so, it. I'm not yeah. so different. Yeah. yeah. I've gotten bad grades on tests before. Like <laughs> keep going, you know? Yeah. I don't think, I don't think anyone's gotten a hundred percent on every yeah. single homework and test <laughs> exactly. assignment. Yeah. What? That's <laughs> not true. Oh, yeah, I guess you're the Slackers. only one there. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know you're what you are kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think our message overall is like pretty positive on our account. We're not like very controversial. We're just there for like to help out people, support people and show kind of what we do on our day-to-day lives. So, so far it's only been a great experience. Yeah. And we try to highlight the positive aspects because it yeah. is 90% of the time positive. I'm sh- like every experience anyone has in any field, you, there's always those bad days and everyone has those. But um, generally, we're just so happy with what we do and we love it. Um, so people always, sometimes that's a criticism. People say it's like you guys only post the positive. But um, I think it's just because we want it. That's what we want to showcase. And um, like everything, you can be negative, but why be negative when you can showcase the positive things and why you like it um, and not deter people away from what our field so yeah there's nothing wrong with that I mean it's your account you can you can kind of and at the end of the day do whatever you want with it and I know that uh you know as far as highlighting only the positives I'm, I'm assuming that when people actually you know talk to you DM you and ask you for advice saying I'm having a hard time like you're going to tell them hey you know it's it's fine oh, of course. So, of course. Things yeah. Happen. yeah yeah it's not like you're actively trying to hide it uh no that's that's fantastic that's yeah, I think I think overall that the like I said before, I think the brand is is really cool. Um, I have been on Instagram for I don't know like a year, maybe a year and a half, and you know, I followed a bunch of different science communicators, but I don't really see a whole lot of MD like medical scientists like MD PhDs going out there and doing that. I see a lot of PhDs, uh, but not mm-hmm. so much of and MDs, but not so much the combination of the medical scientists. Although there is one other account 
that is really interesting uh, by the name of immunofluorescence. It's this MD-PhD student somewhere on the East Coast. I don't know if you've ever heard of this individual. And he does nothing but post his research. Um, it's just gorgeous. They're just like basically slides. Histology well, is like, amazing. <laughs> what'd you say? That histology is like one of the prettiest things you can post about. I would yeah, think that well, like- Yeah, that's exactly, precisely, histology, that's it. Yeah, his account is nothing but histology and with all these gorgeous filters and they look like, they look like portraits. Yeah, and, that's beautiful. And it's like, this was built for Instagram. Oh it's yeah, like, it's, it's, like, yeah. <laughs> this is my phone background, I have cells. I just yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That, yeah. The entire account, the entire account is, is nothing but that. And he gets like yeah. thousands of likes and whatnot. And I was like, I can understand. This was built yeah. for Instagram. I always wasn't like looking DJs at that. should use those images like on their in their DJ sets, you know, when they project like lasers in the background, it should just be histology images. Like they're so beautiful. They they're are. so pretty. I and you could be learning too. Maybe you could like, learning, you could, like, yeah. you could, like you could put out or she could put out some sort of tidbits of medical advice here and there <laughs> within the music and then put up Should a we all be DJs then? <laughs> I'll leave that to you. <laughs> if you I'll, I'll just follow you on in social media. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, so you have approximately how long until, so you're halfway through the program roughly, or you said it's going to be about eight years until, or was it six years until you graduate? So you're three years in, graduate. Like five years. Five years, approximately. Roughly. Roughly okay. five years. Yeah. Approximately, okay. So what then? So Marisol, I know that you said you wanted to go into neurosurgery. Yep. So why, why that particular area? So have you actually, have you done anything surgery-wise or do you only do surgery when it comes to uh, like the, the resi residency afterwards? Or is that something that you do as a actual student? Do you get to be- You can do, you can really participate as a student, which is extremely nice. And if you find good neurosurgeons, uh, are willing to work with you, they, they would let you be in the OR, which is the operating room. Some people might not know that. Um, let you be in the operating room and help out. And I was lucky that I was able to get involved with a neurosurgery project that works at, with Parkinson patients. Um, and I was able to go in, set up. So in, in these surgeries, these patients are awake. Um, they're just anesthetized, so they can't feel that someone's poking their brain um, or like opening their skull, but these patients are awake and we were doing actually some experiments on them. And I was one of the lead students. Lindsay actually was, was involved with this fun. early on. Yeah. Um, okay. And I also am involved mm -hmm. with other neurosurgery clinical papers that I've been writing. So I, it's really easy as a, a med student to get involved uh, with neurosurgery. I mean, obviously they're not going to give you a scalpel and be like, here, take over this patient. As soon as you um, walk you in the door. Be, yeah. I mean, I wish, I wish. <laughs> But um, you basically can be there and being there is already like step one, right? And then you do residency where you actually get trained in all of this. Um, but for me, it was a process of elimination. I was, in, I started, when I knew I wanted to do neuroscience, I basically limited myself to three clinical areas, I believe so, which was neurology, psychiatry, and neurosurgery. And I kind of just shifted through all three until I re really realized that neurosurgery was what I particularly was very interested in. Um, and I always kind of say the story and like in the lab, there's a lot of like delayed gratification. It might take a month, two months, a year for you to discover something that's actually meaningful for you or the, you know, the experiments finally run the way you want them to. With neurosurgery, a patient comes in, specifically if it's like functional neurosurgery where it's a Parkinson's patient, they come in with a tremor, you stick a device in them, two hours later they walk out, their tremor is gone. 
and there's no delayed gratification there. And I kind of really like the balance of having delayed gratification in the lab, but then also going in, seeing a patient, and being able to help them restore function in literally three hours or so. So I, th I think I found that balance doing a combination of neuroscience and neurosurgery. I think I didn't find that anywhere else, especially in psychiatry where I feel like it's just, we, we don't know anything. It's kind of sad and scary. I feel like that would have been too much uncertainty in both sides in the lab and in the in the clinics. I, I don't think I would have been able to handle that. Are you, are you talking about the, the very soft science nature of psychiatry when you say we don't know uh, anything? That's, I, that's a rough term, but I want to say like, you know, someone has, uh, I don't know, let's, if someone has a cardiovascular problem, you kind of know exactly what you're going to give them and you're going to know how long it's going to take before they feel better. With mm -hmm. psychiatry, there's so much overlap with all these psychiatric disorders. It's really hard to one, diagnose someone. I mean, there's a manual that people follow and that's what's used uh, clinically. Um, but it's very hard to be 100% exact that that's what that patient has. And in addition to that, you might have one psychiatric disorder, but you might also have a couple others that are kind of the comorbidities that come with one psychiatric disorder. So it's very hard okay. to just assume that with one drug, you can fix that. And then in another sense, we also don't know anything about the brain. And so it's very hard to, you know, see some sort of behavioral change and try to, you know, with a, with a drug or with some sort of therapy, try to fix that to what we consider normal when we yeah. basically don't even know what's normal. But that's just a problem with neuroscience in general. That makes mean it that... also fascinating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot to learn, right? Yeah. And I, um, I actually... I don't, I should clarify, I don't mean to bash psychiatry. Um, my, my stepmother is actually a psychologist and my mom, before she went on to dental school, uh, got a bachelor's degree in psychology. I'm fascinated by psychology, but as a physicist, I do know that there are certain limitations, particularly within psychiatry. So that is the, the medical treatment of, psych, of psychological disorders, things of that nature, that it has a very rough history. Yeah. And uh, it is getting better and that more diagnostic techniques are being infused into it. But uh, that, that was all, that's what, I, that's all that I meant by soft science. I didn't mean yeah. to offend. No, no, you did not offend. Okay. I just didn't want to like repeat it. Yeah. But. Okay. Uh, so, so neurosurgery and then, so, and then Juliana and Lindsay, what, what would be the, what would be the next steps for, for you guys, for you two? I, I think both of us are still kind of um, exploring and deciding. Um, that's the, the kind of cool thing about um, MD-PhD programs or medical school. You um, you can go in. Some people, um, like Marcel, know what they want to do from the beginning, and you can explore that and just build on it. But it's also exciting because there's so many different things you can do. And um, if you don't know, you can explore um, and kind of um, use this time to explore different areas and see what you're interested in. Um, I study bone stem cells. Um, I'm definitely interested in the field of orthopedics, but um, we'll see um, what that means for my specialty um, when um, I get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we don't yeah. have to decide till um, we're in our, um, like, and, and when we go back to medical school, right? Um, so in a few years. But not even then. I feel like a lot of students, so if you're doing like the uh, traditional four-year med school path, most students don't decide until like their end of third year once they've rotated through all the specialties and have a better idea. It's not till then until like you have to actually apply to residency that people don't decide. So like you technically have like four or five years. <laughs> Got time. <laughs> is, uh, it, so residency is kind of really where you specialize then, right? 
So you yeah. kind of just get a generic education, moral or generic medical education, I should say, mm -hmm. over the first four years or so. And then you specialize into residency, kind of pick pick what area of medicine it is that you want to work in. Exactly. Yeah. You're it's right. like similar okay. to a postdoc. <laughs> where you like kind of decide like what you might piggyback your your potential research on when you open your own lab if that's what you want to do. I see. At this point it's like what you're you're more uh, narrowing down your interests to one area of medicine. Okay. That makes sense. What would you say, like, what excites you most, I guess, moving forward, like in medicine, within, within medical science? What are you most excited about? Obviously, the things that you're researching, I guess, I mean, maybe that would be it. But I mean, I guess out of everything in the medical sphere that's being done these days, what do you think are some of the more exciting uh, some exciting advancements, things of that nature that people should be excited about? Uh, I think I just single cell RNA sequencing. Oh. <laughs> you can't read a paper now without yeah. doing single cell RNA sequencing. Um, so now they can sequence cells on like yeah. an individual level. We talked this morning about it. Yeah. It's really good. And li literally every paper. Yeah. And you can diagnose diseases now based off of knowing how different cells, um, the genome of single cells and that's really interesting and fascinating to think about in terms of the future of like precision medicine um, and tailoring uh, treatments to um, individuals. Um, maybe, uh, maybe actually say with single sequencing. Yeah. yeah so, like um, before you would do this thing called bulk RNA seq where you would sequence, um, you'd get a tissue, either human or mouse or whatever organism you're working with. And you would, um, just sequence all the cells together and yeah. gather information about them like on a collective, a, a collective level. level about yeah. their like total RNA content and just kind of infer things about that. Um, so now they have this technology. Um, they have a few different ways you can go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly it's droplet based where like there's like lipid droplets that like um, uh, attract the cell. And so you can do it like on a cell by cell basis and sequence the cells. And so then when you put the cells together, you can use computational methods to cluster cells with similar um, uh, identities, expression identities together, say, oh, these cells all express similar things, so they must be um, like, I, like one group of cells, like osteoblasts, which are bone cells, and these group of cells express um, things that make them look like fibroblasts, and you can like say, oh, but within the fibroblasts, there's like even more categorizations. Yeah. So it gives you just like a more detailed look, where before we we're getting a really broad picture, now you can get more nuanced. Um, and so that's opened um, a lot of doors. Um, and I think seeing technologies like this um, and how we'll just, that you can even just go further than this and think about um, how they'll um, improve even more on this, doing mm -hmm. things at a protein level, because um, right now it's on an RNA level, which you're starting to do, but still working on. So um, I think it's, that's really exciting to see technologies like this. Um, and I think um, we're gonna get more and more detailed understanding of the human body through this. That's super interesting. I, I had I have never heard of that before. I mean, yeah. I've heard of like genomic sequencing and things like that, but I haven't heard about this this cutting edge stuff, which is surprising because I do a lot of reading and I'm just I'm like subscribed to a bunch of different science magazines and things like that, and I'm just surprised I never heard of this. You probably you, you've probably seen it. Yeah. It just um, they just like um, now that you know, you'll know and you'll see a paper and you're like, now I know. I'm sorry. What, what's the name again? Single cell RNA sequencing. Mm -hmm. Single cell uh, RNA sequencing. Okay. It's a mouthful. I think I'm gonna have to. I think I'm gonna have to Google that later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's, it, it all goes back to computation, like 
computational biology as well. So I think I tell people when they DM us on scopes and scrubs, like, what should I learn? I'm like, learn how to code, know, have the proficiency in like any type of coding language, like preferably maybe like R or MATLAB. Um, I think a lot of science is being pushed in that direction towards like big data. Um, yeah. So I think that kind of that technology, like under what underlies it is like um, having a proficiency in um, these different coding languages um, so you can manipulate large data sets um, which provides a whole new set of opportunities and discoveries. Yeah, I think that these days it's almost impossible to be, in a, be a scientist and not know how to program because of the large volumes of data that you're dealing with these days. It's just impossible to do it, obviously, by hand. You need to use computers in order to use the computers and these various programs. You need to understand, you need to know how to code. I think, I think like, all of society is kind of pushing that way big data. I mean, they're saying like data is more valuable than oil now. It's the most valuable resource on the planet. Yeah. And I, yeah, science is definitely going that direction along with a, uh, with a bunch of other fields as well, or areas mm -hmm. of society. So, so yeah, so coding. Okay, so uh, you said R, MATLAB. What are some other languages that you work with? I'm assuming you all are programmers or you have done some coding. Uh, yeah, I think Marcel's probably the most at brain activity in animals that's probably recorded over long periods of time and you have to be able to detect certain signals specifically that's encoded in this big electrical activity that you're collecting so I do use like MATLAB and Python a lot um, in the lab um, but what's really nice that since in a lot of neuroscience labs, since you're using a lot of code and you have, and most people are looking at similar uh, features in the brain activity, all of this is kind of like mainstream now. So you can go into GitHub, which is a very like popular website where you can kind of download all these scripts that people use to find particular pieces of information like within their data sets. Um, so I think it's getting nicer now to like kind of do uh, computational work because there's a lot of scripts written out there and you don't have to spend like days or weeks or months like troubleshooting something that someone already has made. And so it's kind of really nice that the science community is out there willing to like share data, sh willing to share scripts and stuff like that, um, which I think is going to move science even faster now, nowadays. Um, but going back to like technology things, I think the hospitals are going to be functioning very different. Uh, maybe even by the time we start residency, I think there's a lot of interest in like using robotics and like diagnosis, diagnostic algorithms. So right now at like one of our hospitals, we have um, like a robot that is cleans the floor and it just knows like how to avoid people, how to clean the floor, how to get in the elevator, how to click the elevator button for like or how to get to the second floor or the third floor. It knows not to take the stairs and like fall. <laughs> um, and this same robot also delivers food to patients, which is kind of incredible. Um, so I can see more of medicine kind of moving into more like technology. Uh, which will, will be really fascinating for us to see once we're actually practicing in the hospital. So I've seen, um, I've seen robotic surgeons. Uh, I've seen remarkable videos of, and what in particular, I, I don't know if it's called Da Vinci or it's got some yeah, really cool da name. Yeah. The Da Vinci? Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> the one where they, they peel the skin off of a grape and then sew it back on? Yep. Have you yeah. seen that video? <laughs> yes, I'm assuming yeah, you've seen that video. It's, I've yeah, seen yeah. that video. That's incredible. You, yeah, so... <laughs> Was that done? I can't remember if that was done by remote operation or was an actual surgeon in the room operating that like I, well, the, the reason I ask is I was, I was saying like, 
you know, are you worried about not having a, a job in surgery because you have all of these robots? <laughs> yeah. Now? No, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think that obviously um, surgeons I would do. go, <laughs> you think they're going to go completely <laughs> no, away? No, one of those robots costs so much money. It costs more money to <laughs> do that than to pay a surgeon. <laughs> Maybe way down the line. I think Julie saw one of these. I've right? seen it. Yeah, I've seen yeah. the, yeah. the Da Vinci okay. robot. But when I was in there, it was really funny because I couldn't tell who was like operating it. But then I looked and I saw the surgeon was sitting like in the corner of the room, like, like, it looked like he was playing a video game. It was really cool. They actually say now that one of the best surgical skills you can have is video games. It was crazy to watch. Um, I just couldn't believe the level of precision. It was remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, and that's exactly what you would need for a robotic surgeon, though, because that's the type of precision that the actual surgeon needs to have in the operating room. Because one, you know, you're talking about if you're off by millimeters, you could end up killing someone, particularly in neurosurgery. Obviously, Marisol, you would know more about this than I would, but very, very sensitive structures. And I mean, I, w I would think, I mean, I guess I'm just hyped. Surprisingly, I'm you have a lot of space in the brain, but one of the biggest problems is like bleeding. Um, and actually just all this, Elon Musk just created this like robot that can go into the brain and actually it scans for blood vessels so that it can, let's say it's implanting a device, it can kind of, if it sees a blood vessel, it moves around it, uh, which is quite fascinating. Oh, I'm wow. assuming he created that for Neuralink? Yeah, so he, he's using it to like implant electrodes into the human brain. And so it's a robot that comes in and like implants these flexible electrodes, but it sees the blood vessel, moves, and then oh. keeps moving down. So, to, so we do this in, um, in animals and we implant these electrodes so we can record their activity. Um, and this takes me like eight hour surgery, maybe six to eight hours. This robot does it in 20 minutes and like it also avoids bleeding. And I'm just like, what am I doing? <laughs> but it's really fascinating. Like the fact that like technology in the future might be able to do that and cut down on a lot of time that we spend in lab doing kind of like the silly side of science, which is just prepping experiments, right? How, how would you even prep yourself for a six to eight hour surgery where you have to be on your feet and like in somebody's head or in your case, you're dealing with an animal. But I just, I, I don't even know because I've heard of people like surgeons doing surgeries for like a day. Like th they were there for 20 to 24 hours. It's like, is it a tag team or like, I, don't, I just don't even know. Because something that's always baffled my mind is just how long as a medical doctor, like when you're going, when you're actually in the, um, like doing your rounds maybe in like the ER or maybe you're on a shift or whatever, how long they are. Mm -hmm. And to be, you know, you have to be at your best, I guess, like during that entire shift and maybe not the entire time, but you, you're going to have people's lives in your hands potentially. So I'm just curious as to what the atmosphere is. Cause I'm, I'm not a part of that. How would you even prep yourself for something like that? The kind of surgery like I toughness? do. Yeah. I just, I, I listen to podcasts and queue up playlists. And so, okay. and I think you just really have to like it. There's, there's a lot of things that we do in the lab. One of them is surgeries. And I can say like probably 10% of the lab actually enjoys doing the surgery. I am part of that 10%. Like I absolutely love surgery days. Um, and so I have a blast doing it and I always queue up just something to entertain myself, like in my head, but <laughs> otherwise, like, I think it, it's like, if you like, playing video games and you can sit and play video games for eight hours or you like watching movies and you can sit and do that or like reading for eight hours I think if you like it you'll be entertained the whole entire way um, I'm not sure yeah I don't know what 24 hours would feel like and going past that and standing I'm like actually sitting and comfortable 
but yeah. adrenaline that pushes you through on those. I think so too. Power surgeries, just the excitement. Well, the same, the same person does it for an entire day. Like there's no like multiple surgeries operating. Rare. Those are rare. Probably doing something pretty like yeah. monumental. Yeah, usually those surgeries are like I don't know, like like a Ben Carson separating twins or something like that. Yeah, exactly. like something crazy. <laughs> or like a trauma case, but I feel like in trauma you still have like different teams coming in. Yeah, there's like right? more than one person in the room too, so it's not like you're like sitting there alone like for 20 hours. I feel like there's like mm -hmm. people like checking what you're doing, and there's lots of people involved, so it kind of a sense of like um, teamwork. Um, yeah, that can kind of get easier too. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, I've never. Always like, I was always really impressed by the longevity of people that work in the healthcare industry because I just don't know, I just don't know if I could do that, you know, stay up for whatever a full day or 36 hours or whatever on rotations and. I, just, I don't think anyone's I, ever prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just something. Yeah. That, it's just something no. that you, you just, kind of like you going have to, boot to do camp. to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're building your stamina. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, something that I've. Uh, like I was perusing your website and uh, I know that you have this on your Instagram too. What exactly does it mean to be a feminist? I obviously know that that is a compound word uh, between STEM and feminist, but I was just curious as to what it means to you three. Um, I mean, so we're, I think we're trying to, it's the whole combining of like science and feminism into one shirt. Um, yeah. I think it really just represents- catchy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? It has a little ring to it. I think it just represents like female in science. I mean, science, as you know, has always been majority male dominated. Yeah. Um, and for us, I think it's more uh, just like we are female, we are scientists, and it's not a weird thing. Like, this is mm -hmm. normal, and like we enjoy this, and these are like the benefits of doing so like do looking into science or being a female in scientist. Um, I think like that's like the bigger picture. Like, what's kind of amazing now is that our the incoming MD PhD class is ten students, and all ten of them are female, which is like the first time probably in history that this ever has happened. And yeah. I think that's what that shirt means. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, no one usually would if a whole class was male, whole MD PhD class is male. Usually people wouldn't think much of it, you know. But um, when it's ten females, people are like, oh my gosh, this is so unusual, this is crazy. So it's kind of the paradigm switch where you know females are entering the scientific field, establishing a place, it's becoming yeah. the new norm. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's, it's wonderful. And um, I'm so happy that um, our program is promoting that and it's, it's happening and it, um, we're embracing it. And um, yeah, that's what it means to be a feminist. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. I am a huge fan of that. And I, I wish that physics would follow the same suit because unfortunately <laughs> physics is still very heavily male dominated. Yeah. I was yeah. in an engineering yeah. lab in college and I was the only female in like 20 people lab and they were all boys. Engineering too. I think engineering, very, yeah, yeah, very male dominated. Uh, medicine I've noticed though, there is more women in, in that go into like biology uh, and medicine. Of the, and I, I don't know why, but it just seems as though uh, they're more attracted to those fields, but I, I it would be wonderful if there were more women in, in physics. I can tell you that much. Yeah, we hope anyone listening. Yeah, someday, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's definitely there's been a shift because as you as you as you had mentioned historically, women in general have not uh, have been in low numbers in science, but you are seeing more and more of that as the years go on. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Next. Next up, physics. <laughs> yeah, next up, physics. Right. So. As, as scientists in training, I am curious to your thoughts of 
the kind of atmosphere, the anti-science atmosphere, like the, you know, the fake news stuff, uh, particularly like the, all the conspiracy, conspiracy theories that have, have been propagated since the pandemic started. Uh, people, as you had mentioned earlier, don't seem to understand or appreciate what it is that scientists do and really, really don't want to listen to them. They think that going on to YouTube and watching a bunch of videos, and I'm not saying that YouTube isn't a good source, because it is. I mean, I'm pretty sure I watched YouTube earlier today for some videos, and I will later tonight. Uh, but to think that because you've watched a bunch of videos on YouTube, or maybe you've read some articles on Google, that your training is somehow equivalent to what a scientist does, you know, a decade post-baccalaureate uh, degree. I was just curious as to your thoughts on that. I mean, I have opinions, but <laughs> but as scientists in training, I mean, do you think it's alarming? I mean, how do you feel about all that? Yeah, I think there is definitely, yeah. And I think it's harder too with the media. I think that what happens is someone publishes an article on something that can be twisted and be very catchy um, and create like a flashy headline. I wish I had a, I can't think of a good example of one in my I head right now. the m and like example for statistics, how people don't understand statistics or the jelly no, they don't. I don't I, understand statistics. <laughs> they'll be like, like, uh, like, like yeah, try to correlate yeah. like green jelly beans to acne. Yeah. Yeah, that's the example. Green, <laughs> people can look this up. Green jelly beans to acne and they find like one in one instance it becomes statistically significant. Just <laughs> green, green jelly beans cause acne. So then there's like a headline like green jelly beans cause acne. So it's but like, yeah, yeah. no one goes in and like reads the paper to see like, oh. oh that's what, super yeah, trendy. Like, like the science behind it. So I feel like a lot of the media will grab on to like a really cool like article that's in cell or nature or science or something and not really and for maybe too much and for too much. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. Categorically well, agree. The media, yeah. the media does that a lot and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the media outlet. They're all engaging in this type of activity. And I'm right. not, I'm not going to sit here and say that you shouldn't like all media is bad, but yeah, uh, no. they, yeah. But the, the sensationalism, I mean, the desire to grab your attention has led certain outlets, I mean, and it's not just in the media, but people in general, to make more and more crazier headlines and kind of distort the truth a little bit in order to grab your attention and generate revenue. Yeah, yeah with statistics, though, in particular, statistics are so easily manipulated. Yeah. And I almost feel slightly embarrassed because I, I don't really understand statistics that well. You know, I have a degree in math. One of my degrees is in math, but I only <laughs> took one stats class. So I have a very poor background in statistics. And I was actually just having a conversation not too long ago with a neuroscientist out of um, Mount Sinai. And we were, we were talking about the stats thing and how in science, because big data is becoming so dominant and it looks like it will in the immediate future, that every peer review board should actually have a PhD in statistics just to ensure the quality the fidelity of the of the mm. statistics that are presented in the paper, uh, because not every scientist is going to be a PhD level, uh, PhD level statistician, and because mm. it's so open to interpretation and things of that nature, that it, it's almost an imperative at this point. Yeah. But yes, yeah, stats are definitely in the media uh, misrepresenting scientific findings. Yeah, that's yeah. I agree. I also want to play devil's advocate here and okay. say that I mean, so before I was ever in science, I would succumb to these like what we call like fake news articles um and i want to say that as scientists we have a responsibility yeah. to interpret these results and 
and kind of, I mean, like the whole science communication thing, like the reason why we want scopes and scrubs to kind of talk about science, talk about how to interpret data, talk about, you know, what's real, what's not real. Um, and I think scientists have a huge role in this. And for the past like decades, we have been ignoring this responsibility that we've had as scientists. And so I want to say that, yes, it is a combination of media trying to make things mainstream, but also scientists not defending their research and not um, explaining the research to the general public that, I mean, some science is really hard to read. And if, like, if you don't have the time or the interest in it, you're just gonna read the article that's up and easy to read. And so I think as scientists, we have a responsibility to help in that interpretation and we have to kind of step up our game. That's a great point, well said. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. I, science communication is, needed more than ever in my opinion these days <clears throat> just because you know people have access to the wealth of human knowledge at their fingertips you walk around with your smart devices everything's so interconnected these days but unfortunately with access to all of this information you you get people get confused they don't know who to listen to they don't know what's 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 true um what's wrong and particularly when it comes to science i mean there were traditional channels that people went to in order to hear about it and they never really questioned it but then people get access to all of this information. They see YouTube videos questioning the science. They're like, oh, there must be something wrong. Maybe there's some sort of grand conspiracy between the world's governments, scientists, and Bill Gates to put microchips in us via mm -hmm. vaccines. And so maybe I'll listen to this person on YouTube. And again, it's kind of like a breakdown of scientists stepping out into the community, community and communi communicating their, um, their research or just general science uh, to the public. And I, I mean, I'm super excited to see all the various science communicators out there, such as yourselves, uh, making an attempt to do that and to get people excited about science. So yeah, yeah, and what you're doing. Yeah, thumbs exactly. up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome. But anyway, I think this is probably a, a good time to, to, to stop. But like, as far as what, where people can find you, like, where, where are you? So you have a website, you have yeah, Instagram, where, are where we? else? <laughs> where are you? Where's Scopes and Scrubs? So we have our Instagram at Scopes and Scrubs. We have our website, scopesandscrubs.org. Um, and um, we have another uh, exciting uh, avenue um, coming up soon. Um, our YouTube. Our YouTube. Oh, yeah, our YouTube, YouTube uh, which <laughs> is just YouTube, Scopes and Scrubs. Um, and yeah, we're going to be doing another social media platform to be wink, really wink, <laughs> wink, wink. Okay, that so. will be more science communication, which is going to be really fun. Yeah, we're like, going to try to do more, 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 more of the science communication stuff. Yeah, will I it mean, be just, like generalized or particular to generalized. medicine? Generalized, uh, okay. Yeah, generalized, but a little bit of our unique project projects and stuff. Okay, but like so, um, everyone can understand, even if you don't have. Yeah. <clears throat> You don't want to drop the line right now? You're gonna no, just, no, we, gonna have, we, <laughs> have to, we have to break the news like on our Instagram first. Okay, that would make <laughs> so sense. Go, fo go follow us on Scopes and Scrubs. Okay, well, yeah, go, yeah, you heard it. Go follow them and you'll find out. Okay, well, I'm super excited to see what, uh, what that's all about. Anyway, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much um, for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My pleasure. Great my pleasure. And for those of you tuning in at home, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, until next time. Yeah, Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. 
So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and a need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.